So if you, if you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along with me in the reading of God's Word, please turn to Psalm 130. If, uh, if you're visiting with us and it's your first time here, um, just so you know, there are, pu- there are Bibles in the P-Rex uh, if you don't have one. Uh, but also we put the scriptures up on the screens in front of you and you'll be able to follow along the reading scripture there and as well uh, the sermon points also. So today we're looking at Psalm 130. So we're coming back to the series that uh, we were in before we took a short break for the Easter season. And Psalm 130 is a part of, in case you were not here for this, uh, this sermon series that we're in, uh, it's a part of, of what, what are called the Songs of Ascents. And this is a collection of 15 psalms that begins with Psalm 120 and it goes over to Psalm 134. And, and scholars will, will point out that the, the, probably the way that these psalms were used in ancient Israel, they were used as, as if, you, if you, would, you could describe them almost as travel psalms or worship psalms. As, as Israel would make their way up to the temple, they would ascend Jerusalem and up to the temple to worship God. And so these psalms would be used for, for that purpose. Now today, we're picking up where we last left off, which is Psalm 130, and, and as we read this, I think you're going to see this is, a, this is an ideal psalm to, to really follow up uh, the things we've been talking about during the Easter season, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I think this psalm is very helpful in uh, us understanding some of the implications of that reality. So Psalm 130. Follow along as I read God's word. A song of a sense. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And this is the word of our God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. You know, this particular psalm is is, uh, one of those psalms that has had a a significant place in the history of the church in terms of, of people of, of real importance in church history that have seen this uh, as an incredibly important psalm. For, for example, Augustine, the early church father, uh, Psalm 130 was his favorite psalm. Uh, the Protestant reformers, uh, Martin Luther and, and John Calvin, uh, they both saw Psalm 130 as their favorite psalm. Uh, in fact, Luther uh, describes Psalm 130 as an appalling psalm. There are about four or five different psalms that Luther described as Pauline. And the reason he described these particular psalms as, as Pauline psalms is because it, it, this particular psalm here, because it so clearly uh, talks to us about God's grace and mercy and that grace and mercy for our salvation. Uh, Luther loved this psalm so much that he wrote a, a wonderful hymn Uh, based upon Psalm 130. In fact, we're going to do that hymn today after the sermon. uh, When we have our hymn of response, we're going to do a version of Luther's Luther's hymn on Psalm 130. So we have these significant leaders, Augustine and and Martin Luther and John Calvin, who loved this this psalm. They thought it was their their favorite psalm. Uh, But there were others as well. For example, the the 17th century Puritan John Owen. Uh, John Owen loved this psalm so much that he wrote a 320-page book on this one psalm, and most of the book is on one verse, 
And that's verse 4 on forgiveness and the forgiveness of sins. I mean, which is a I mean, really amazing thing. And so to sort of move a little bit out of, out of our tradition, John Wesley, who is the, the father of Methodism. Uh, Wesley was saved by God using uh, this particular psalm and the, the reading. I mean, this is one of the things that's kind of funny about how people get saved. But the reading of a preface of a commentary by Martin Luther to, to save, to bring John Wesley to faith. And, and I don't know if you know this psalm well. Uh, but I, I hope after we kind of look at it today that it will become one of those kind of psalms for you that, that really is impactful to your Christian journey because it so clearly helps us to understand uh, salvation by grace and what that means for us. Now, at the beginning, I mentioned to you that these songs of ascent, so sort of all of them together collectively, are psalms that were used for, for Israel sort of to make their way up. What's interesting about this particular psalm is that in this psalm itself, you actually see a, a kind of a song of ascent. In other words, you see a movement upward in this psalm by itself. So the psalmist begins here in, in sort of the abyss of despair. So that's the, that's the starting place. But he ends by the end of the psalm, and we'll see this as we make our way through it, in the high grounds of redemption. And so there's this movement from the abyss to redemption, and all that that means that is the story of this psalm. And I think in many ways, it is a psalm that is a great blessing to God's people. And I hope it will be for you today. Now, we're going to look at this psalm in two ways. And we're going to talk about, and these are these sort of serve as headings over the text as we make our way through it. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to see how this psalm describes something. It describes a great problem, but then it, it offers a gracious solution. And so that's the way we're going to begin looking at this. And then the second thing we see is what this brings about, which is a, a great longing, but then resulting in a gracious effect, okay? So those are the two headings uh, to kind of help you to understand what the psalm is doing. And so the first thing we're going to talk about is this problem, a great problem, but then a gracious solution. And the psalmist really here, he's, he's confronted with a problem, all right? It, it is a profound problem. And it is a problem that all of us have whether we know we have it or not. But the psalmist knows he has it. And because he knows he, is, he has this problem, he's in this problem, he cries out. And this is what you see in the first two verses, where it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, note the way he begins this. He begins it with a cry, out of the depths. And oftentimes that language in, in the Old Testament is used in, in, a, in a setting that would have been very scary for, for most of Israel, which would have been in relationship to the sea, in relationship to the depths, in the relationship to drowning. I mean, that's the kind of language that he's using. As I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't help but think about Jonah. And Jonah from the, the, the belly of the great fish. Do you remember what he did from the belly of the great fish? He's in the depths, Right. And in Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, it says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. It's this, this situation of great distress, great problem. Jonah cried out from the belly of the fish. Now, the psalmist isn't in the belly of a fish, but he knows what Jonah's talking about. He knows this deep distress, and he cries out, and the end of verse 2 says, for mercy, for mercy. So what is the problem that he's facing? Well, some in looking at this particular psalm have seen this as a psalm that is helpful regardless of, 
uh, whatever trouble we may face. I don't know if you know the name Eugene Peterson. He's a, a pastor. He's in heaven now. Uh, but Eugene Peterson has written a number of books that have been very helpful. I've read a number of his books. But one of them is a book on the songs of ascent. And, and in that book, he, he, uh, it's called a long, obedience in the, a long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he believes that the psalmist here is talking generally about trouble. Whatever trouble may be, right, that you can turn to the Lord. However, what, however you're troubled, and God will hear you and God will answer. Now, is that true that God does that? And the answer is yes. I mean, I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 4 where, where we're told there that we can come with boldness and confidence before the throne of grace. You know that passage of Scripture? You can come with boldness and confidence and, and cry out to God and he is there to help you in your time of need. That is a wonderful, assuring passage of Scripture regardless of what our needs may be, regardless of what trouble we may find ourselves in. God is there for us. But I don't think Eugene Peterson is right in terms of this passage. I think the context of this passage isn't talking about trouble in general or any kind of trouble. It is talking about one specific kind of trouble, which is our greatest trouble and our greatest problem. And what is that? It is the problem of sin. And that is mankind's universal problem. Whether you know this or not, whether you accept this or not, everyone on planet Earth faces this particular problem. It is the God problem, right? And so Paul will tell us this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, a verse that I think most of us know well. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He doesn't say many have or most have. He says all have. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, the word sin in the Bible, it actually has this sense of, of, of missing the mark. And the mark we ultimately miss is God himself. We miss him. We fall short of his glory. And as a result of that, we fall short of his will. That's what rebellion is, turning from him and turning from his will. You know, within our tradition, we have a, we have a confessional standard. It's called the Westminster Standards. And it's, just a, it's, a, it's a doctrinal statement related to what we hold to as Presbyterians. And, and a part, it's, it's in three parts. It's the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a large part. It's the, the Westminster Larger Catechism and Shorter Catechism. Catechisms are teaching tools, questions and answers. And one of the questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's question 14, asks the simple question, what is sin? That's the question. What is sin? What is sin? And it answers it this way. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Now think about that for a moment. What is sin? It is a lack of conformity to or a transgression of God's law, God's will. And so when we turn away from God, when we turn in rebellion against him, we turn against his will. We turn against his law. We don't conform to it. And without exception, all of us fall short of this. And if you doubt that, I encourage you to do one of two things. I mean, one, I would encourage you at the end of the service, after the picnic, when you go home, if you doubt whether you struggle with sin, go home and honestly read the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Exodus chapter 20. You'll find it right there. Read it. Okay? Or I'll make it even harder from you. Hear Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That cuts the legs out from all of us, doesn't it? I mean, you just can't do that, right? I mean, we don't. We don't. Because all of us are guilty. All of us are sinners, okay? Now, what 
what we see here is the psalmist gets it. That's how it begins. Out of the depths I cry. He gets it. He gets the, the desperation of his son. He gets with the, there was a 17th century Puritan by the name of Ralph Venning. And, and he, he talked about, he has a book that's entitled, The Sinfulness of Sin. That's what the psalmist gets. The Sinfulness of Sin. Right? The previous title of that book he wrote, oh, The Sinfulness of Sin, that's, a, that's the title that was updated. The previous title was The Plague of Plagues. Right? And he's talking about sin. He actually makes this statement about it. He, he says that sin, and, and this is interesting, he says sin is the world's most serious epidemic. Isn't that interesting? We can connect to that, right? We just went through a pandemic, didn't we? What's the difference? I mean, if he, if he had uses of that word, he probably would have used it. An epidemic is localized. What is a pandemic? It's, it's worldwide. It's everywhere, right? It's global, right? There is a pandemic that we all face, and it is the pandemic of, of sin. And unlike COVID, well, there's no, there's no vaccination. There's no isolation. And there's no petering out. It's there. And it's in us, original and actual. And it's in every one of us. And the psalmist knows it. And I hope you do. I hope you do. Because we have a tendency of doing a lot of things with sin. I think, um, I think we can, you know, fall into victimhood. I did this bad thing because that person did this thing to me. And then we ex kind of excuse it. Or we rationalize it, right? It's really not that bad. Everybody does it. The psalmist sees it. He gets it. He gets his sin. And it's critical that we do as well. Because if you don't, if you don't get it, you're not going to get what the psalmist does, which is to turn to God for mercy. See? I mean, this is the thing about, I mean, I've, I mentioned this during the Easter season, and I think this is a real problem in evangelicalism today, that, that preachers don't talk about sin. And, and when we don't talk about it, here's what we are undermining. We're undermining the gospel of grace. We're undermining the mercy of God. Because we're not going to see the beauty of the gospel. We're not going to see the good news of the gospel unless we see the bad. Unless we see our predicament. Unless we see our son. It's sort of like taking a beautiful diamond and putting it on a, on, a, on a black cloth so the diamond shines out all the brighter. That's seeing our son. It's seeing it. Acknowledging it. And acknowledging how, how much God hates it. And then turning to his mercy. And when we do, when we see it, when we understand it, in the desperate situation that we find, we find help. And so this is the gracious solution that you see here because the, what the text goes on and talks about is that there can be and is forgiveness for us. And so if you notice in verse 3, note what he goes on to say. He says, if you, O, o Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, Right? And so what he's, what he's saying is, is if the Lord would, would mark our iniquities, if he would hold our iniquities, then who could stand before God? And the answer is obvious. No one could because we're all guilty before a holy God. But then in verse 4, 
And this is, this is so beautiful and so wonderful. He, he says at the beginning of verse 4, but, but with you there is forgiveness. And note, this is something that's present. It's now. There is forgiveness. And it's not limited. It's not like God forgives just these particular kinds of sin. There is forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your sin is. With him there is forgiveness. But we have to we have to understand something more that I think this text helps us to get. Because again, I, th- I think we can, we, can, we can trivialize the forgiveness of God. I think we can do that. We can be guilty of that. We can, I think we can trivialize our sin and not see the seriousness of our sin before a holy God. And I think we can trivialize what God actually does and has accomplished to, to actually forgive us. And how do we do that? Well, we just sort of like, well, God just does that. Are you, are you familiar with the name Voltaire? He was an 18th century French philosopher. Voltaire most was a deist. He rejected most Christian doctrines. And and here's what Voltaire said about forgiveness, about God and forgiveness. Can you put it on the screen? God forgives because it is his business to forgive. Now, you look at that, and there may be some of us who are sitting here going, well, that makes a lot of sense. God forgives because it is his business to forgive. Because on the one hand, when we think about God, God forgives because he is a forgiving God, right? But Voltaire was a cynic critical and didn't believe the things that we believe what he's saying is what I think some of us can fall into the trap of believing and it is this that God just sort of ignores our sin and it really doesn't matter that much to him therefore God just he's just that kind of God and so whatever I do it really doesn't matter to God because he's going to forgive me Remember Paul, like, when he talks about grace, and does he say that, you know, there's more grace, then that means I can sin more. Because I got God's grace, I can sin more. Paul says, God forbid. You know, one of the things we have to understand here in this passage is how, how redemption is connected into forgiveness. And without this, you don't, know, you don't know forgiveness. You don't know what it means to be forgiven by God. There's, there's a sense in which when we come to forgiveness, you've got to see the depths of your sin, but you also have to see what God has actually done for your forgiveness. Note again in back in verse, verse 3 where he talks about you should, that if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who, who could stand. The reason why God doesn't mark our iniquities is because he has laid the mark on another. You're not forgiven just simply because God has overlooked your sin or pretended like it doesn't matter. Forgiveness is solely based upon his redemptive purposes. So so the psalmist, he picks this up. If you look at verse 8 and he says this, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it all pointed forward to this redemption, this ultimate final once for all redemption, which is this idea of being Paid for. Our sin is paid for on the cross of Christ. That's what the Easter story is all about. And it is the only way by which you and I can find genuine forgiveness. And so if you think about it then, there, there, there is forgiveness because of Jesus. So we, we see the depths of our sin and we see a mercy that is costly. It costs God his son for our forgiveness. His son. Now, when we begin to understand that, then we begin to see, okay, 
Forgiveness isn't some willy-nilly thing where I walk through my life uncaring about sin, uncaring about what I do, uncaring about God, and I just do my thing because God forgives. That is not what this text says. Note the entirety of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. And look how it ends. That you may be feared. Now, what does this mean? It means forgiveness is transformative. It means grace is transformative. It means it leads us into a relationship where we, it's not cowering in fear, but it's, it's reverence. It, it leads us to, to a God where, that we, we, we exalt, that we, we worship. You see that? It brings us before him. And this is why if, if you're just sort of living this sort of life of grace without a sense of holiness or a life of forgiveness without a sense of God and all that he is and your life isn't come close to him because of what he's done for you, then you're not getting forgiveness. Do you understand that? You're not getting grace. This is what Bonhoeffer was talking about when he talked about cheap grace. Cheap forgiveness. When we know it, our desperate state, our glorious Savior, then we fear him. But see, that leads to what we see next, because it's not just that we revere him, we, we want him more, we, we want to know him better. So this is the second thing we see in this passage, a great longing and a gracious effect. And so what, what happens when we truly, truly repent and find forgiveness is we, we, we've, we've come into this place of transformation where we fear the Lord and we want to know him better. And I think this is what the psalmist is talking about in verse 5 and 6. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. So when he says, I wait, what is he waiting for? Well, some will tell you that he's waiting for the experience of forgiveness. And I don't think that's actually what this is saying. I don't think he says, I'm waiting for the experience of forgiveness. I think Thomas has already come to terms with that. He's seen his sin. He cried out to mercy. He's experienced the forgiveness of, of God. What is he waiting for? Well, I think we just need to take it at face value. What does he say? He says, I wait for the Lord. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for God. He wants God. He wants more of God. He wants to know God better. He, he's putting his hope in God, his, his trust in God, his confidence in God. And so this sense of moving from the, the place, the depths of sin to forgiveness by the grace of God, it brings you to a place where you want God more. An indication of the beauty of the gospel is that it leads you to God and to want to know him better and grow in him and honor him. So I could ask you some questions. And I think all of these questions get to the key. And I think these things, so don't misunderstand me, right? We, we all can, let me back up. I am thankful that God's grace is greater than my understanding. <laughs> okay, you hear me? That means God's grace has us even when we don't always get it right. I'm so thankful for that because so much of my life I just haven't, 
And I haven't even understood how to get it right a lot of times in my life. But saying that, I do want you to understand that knowledge, doctrine, these lead us to things that we need to know and embrace. And this idea of forgiveness being a cheap thing has too many in churches today. It's not. It takes us to him, to him. Now, I've said this so many times in, in the last, I don't know how many sermons I've preached here, about the idea of a, of a covenantal relationship with God, that, that, that God is faithful covenantally towards us and that we respond to him by coming into a relationship of faithfulness to him where we live for him. And so then the questions then I can put before you is this, do you long for God's presence? Do you long for God's word? Do you long for worship? Do you long for the day when Jesus returns? And I'm not just simply talking about because the world seems so bad right now. I'm talking about longing for the fullness of God. Doesn't matter what the world is like, but longing for God. Derek Thomas, I don't know if you know that name. He's a, he's a theologian connected to Reformed Seminary. If you're at all familiar with Ligonier, he does a lot of stuff with Ligonier. Derek Thomas has a commentary on this. And one of the things he points out is that I find interesting is in verse 6 where it says, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, that the morning imagery there can actually be eschatological. Now, what does that word mean? Big word, it just simply means the end of things. And so what he, what he talks about is this, how the, the watchman of the city would be the person who watched out for the city at night. He had to keep his eyes open, had to keep guard, all those kind of things. And he would long for the morning because in the morning there was safety and in the morning there was rest. Okay, both of those things. So he longed for the morning. But to think of the morning in this way, this eschatological way, this longing for the dawn of that eternal day. When Jesus comes again, and we are fully in his presence. Do you know what forgiveness of sin leads us to? That. It leads us to that. Longing for God more than anything else. This is why Paul would say that to live is Christ. To die is what? Why is that gain? Because Paul knows in his heart of hearts, it's better. It's better. Those who truly experience the forgiveness of God, who see the sin and see the Savior, long for the better. But it's not just that you want that. I, the, the, the last part of the second point is this has this gracious effect. It means if, if you really are getting forgiveness, you see your sin, you see your Savior, that really is defining your life, you know what else is going to happen? You're going to want other people to know this too, right? I mean, how could you not? And this is what we see in verse 7 where he says, O Israel. So here's a single psalmist now turning to all of Israel. And he says, O Israel. Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. It's the word hesed in, in Hebrew. It's a, it's a word that speaks of God's covenantal love, his covenantal faithfulness, his commitment, his gracious commitment to his people. With the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is, I love this last, plentiful redemption. <laughs> That's pretty cool, right? Plentiful redemption. Not a little bit, 
not just enough, but so much. It's like it's plentiful. It's like it just keeps pouring. God gives more grace, as the hymnist would say. It keeps pouring out upon us. I want you today, all of you, to know that God's steadfast love, his plentiful redemption is yours. And as believers, like the psalmist, I call all of us to put our hope in him. Not this world. And not the things of this world, but this God who takes us from the abyss and gives us everything. And for those who may be here today and you don't know the Savior, oh, I pray that you will see your sin. And you will see that sin before a holy God. And that you will experience godly grief. Not worldly because you've been found out or whatever, but godly grief. And you will trust in the Savior of plenteous redemption. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises of scripture and the hope of the gospel and for saving us, Lord. Uh, We have been reminded of that through the Easter season. We're reminded of that from this psalm that you have done all that is sufficient for our salvation. And we thank you. And we pray that you would help, help us, Lord, by your spirit, light a fire in our lives so that we would seek to live for you and bring you glory and honor you in every possible way. Uh, you are good and you are worthy. And we pray, Lord, that you would just strengthen us and encourage your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, as the 